Whoa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good night. This is Connor Hall of the Golden Hours Podcast, and this is a GDP Minute. Now, guys, here's a quick one for you today. Pretty irrelevant to the movie, other than the fact that I pitched the movie to this young lady and her family to go watch it. Hear that? It's my car locking because I'm in the Civic. Civic Chronicles, baby. I just had Congresswoman Lori Trahan on our podcast. She is the congresswoman for the 3rd District. And her press team was adamant about this episode being about 25 minutes. So it's super concise, super short. And I think there's enough information for you guys to snag a little value. And I know I haven't really been asking very much recently. But guys, if you know if you get any sort of value from this episode, just share it with a friend, man. That's all we ask. Laugh, cry, share. Shoot, I was on a roll. I said share. Laugh, cry, smile, learn something, share it with a friend. Anyway, I had Lori on the show. It was fun. Asked her some political questions about student debt. Asked her what she really does. Asked her if she thinks business people can make a bigger impact than politicians. And other than that, it's a quick one, man. Hope you guys enjoy it. All love, my brethren. Golden Deer Productions. Golden Deer. Oh, wait, was that not it? Hey, enter, just, you forgot to enter. Hi, I'm Lori Trahan, and this is my golden hour. Hey, Connor, how are you? Hello, Congresswoman, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. It's Lori, please. Lori, you're like the cool Congresswoman I heard. I don't know who told you that, but it certainly wasn't my children. <laughs> well, I gotta be honest, I feel like a lot of politicians who campaign are super cool during their campaigns. And then when they get elected, they kind of turn into politician dweebs. But I think you're killing it, man. Well, well thank you for that, Connor. It's the nicest thing anyone said to me so far today. <laughs> well, let me introduce myself real quick. My yeah. name is Connor Hallway. I've been yeah. running this show for some time now. And over the past year, I've been producing a movie in Boston. Oh, cool. About and I'm, I'm aiming to release it all over the state this upcoming fall. Nice. And what's the movie on? I can't tell you that. You got to show up in theaters. What's wrong with you? Fair enough. So you're releasing it in the theater. It's not going to be streamed like I've been catching all my new releases. Well, I think it would be totally beneficial to people who work in movie theaters around here. Yeah. People actually shift back into theaters. What do you think? Well, you know what? We're moviegoers, so I can't wait to go back to a theater with my kids. Now, are you a Netflix woman or are you an Amazon Prime woman? Um, you know, I watch, I watch Netflix, Hulu. I watch a lot of Disney plus I've got seven and 11 year old girls. Um, I'll tell you, I just binge watched the, uh, the Elizabeth, um, uh, excuse me, the Isabel Stewart Gardner museum, um, series, uh, about the theft. It was, it was terrific. It's only four episodes. It's great. Hey, before we move on, Lexi, you want to say hi, this is our producer, Lexi. Hi, Lexi. Hi, Lori. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for joining us. No, it's my pleasure. I'm sorry it took us so long to schedule and get this done. It's been a busy first part of the year. It's all good. I heard you also had COVID. What was it like for you? Oh, uh, well, my it's COVID really hard. sister. <laughs> you know, it was frustrating. I got it, you know, after a full year of vigilance with my, you know, I've got three older stepsons and I was like on them all the time. And then I get it. And I was, I'm the only person in my family who got it, which was the good thing. My symptoms were mild, which was also uh, great, but you know, that quarantining for 12 days in your home 
with young kids is a challenge. Um, but, you know, I was lucky. I didn't, you know, there are people who have, you know, lost relatives and lost family members and we didn't come anything close to that um, for the entire year, which, you know, of course we're so fortunate, but um, yeah, I had it and it was, uh, it was actually, I probably got it the same week that I got vaccinated, um, probably really? inauguration week, if I had to think back to, you know, how, how I contracted it. Wait, so how did that work? Did the vaccine diminish any of the effects of the COVID? You know, they say that, um, you know, the vaccine does diminish those symptoms, but to be honest, I mean, I, I was here uh, and traveling, of course, the week of the inauguration, um, which, you know, I had three tests that week. And then after the weekend, I had a positive. So, you know, I, I think it was too proximate between, you know, my getting it and, uh, and my first shot, right? I mean, that the shot, I don't think would have taken effect in days. Um, uh, so I, I, but I do think that they were very close. Um, so, but I, I was, you know, I didn't have, I didn't have uh, bad symptoms. I had like three days where I had like severe fatigue and a little, you know, fogginess and, and aches and, you know, that, but it wasn't anything. Um, uh, it was the same with me. I had a, I got it January also. And I just woke up one morning, no taste, no smell. It's just a really strange oh, wow. sensation. That and but you've gotten it back, right? I'd say my smell is probably about like sixty percent. See, we're um, I'm on the health subcommittee here in in Washington, and we just did a hearing on long COVID, uh, and there are thousands of people who have these enduring symptoms, and it's not just you no know, no taste, no smell. It's like chronic fatigue syndrome. It's you know we've had I I spoke to one woman who was a constituent of mine. She's had a stroke. I mean, it's like. Uh, we're going to be living with these effects for a long time. So, you know, long COVID is what they call it. They call it long COVID. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the NIH is studying it um, uh, just so that we can understand it better. We can treat it better and, and arm our, our physicians and our doctors to diagnose it because, you know, it's uh, in the beginning, a lot of folks, they weren't, especially young, uh, young people, they weren't believed. Um uh, and so, yeah, we're, we're doing a lot of education and, and research into that, but it's a, we're lucky, Connor, we're lucky we don't have that, but I do hope you get your taste and smell back because that's, um, that's, don't want to, I, I imagine that's dramatically, uh, inhibit, you know, prohibitive. I'm not soft. I can handle it. <laughs> a lot of people have had it much worse than I have. Now question, how do you split your time right now between DC and Massachusetts? Yeah. Um, so I, uh, you know, we're mostly down in Washington for three weeks and then in our districts for a week. And sometimes that changes, uh, you know, the calendar is pretty fluid, uh, but I come down for votes um, and, you know, I'll typically be here from a Monday to a Thursday, like this week or a Tuesday to a Friday, uh, like last week. And, um, and then I'm, you know, home the, uh, the other days and, you know, getting out and about in the, in the district. So you know, I've got a place down here, uh, which is helpful. Um, and but yeah, I think all during this past year, I, I kept traveling down here. I really didn't use the proxy voting until uh, I got COVID. Uh, and then um, when my girls went back to school, went back into a classroom. Um, so yeah, it's been, uh, you know, a lot of the committee work is still done over Zoom. So we do that when we're home. We also do it when we're here. Now, 
when you shift back to Lowell Lawrence, the third congressional district, what are your responsibilities when you touch back? I'm just trying to simplify for anyone that doesn't really know what a congresswoman might do. Oh, yeah. No. So uh, I'm out and about in my, you know, communities. Um, you know, look, a big part of what I do is I elevate the stories from the communities that I represent. And I've got diverse communities, right? I, I was born and raised in Lowell. Uh, Lawrence, uh, you know, has been one of the um, hardest hit communities uh, during COVID. Um, so when we're talking about healthcare disparities, when, when we're talking about like equity in our vac vaccines um, and, and all those, you know, sort of enduring, uh, you know, I elevate Lawrence and the challenges that, you know, we've seen there. Um, but, you know, I also have communities like Concord uh, and Acton and, um, uh, and Hudson and Marlboro. I go all the way west to Fitchburg and Gardner. And so is Lexington in your district? No, no, it's in uh, Catherine Clark's district. OK, um, I grew up in I grew up in Lincoln, Mass. Oh, OK. Terrific. Terrific. So yeah, that is just, that's Lincoln is not in my district, but, you know, it probably once was way back. Will um, your kids go to Westford Academy? Uh, yeah, they're in Westford Public Schools right now, so we're we're hoping that they say I went to public schools and um, hugely beneficial. Well, they're divisional rivals, Lincoln and Westford. Oh, terrific! What sport did you play? Well, I wasn't much of an athlete. <laughs> I rode a little bench playing football, but other than that, not much. Um, that is quite all right. You know, I, I, I you am played in college, correct? I did. I played volleyball. Yeah. I was a basketball player, you know, during my, my younger years and then, uh, fell in love with volleyball, like in, in high school. Yeah. Now you're a newer Congresswoman. Have some of the, like the glamorous effects worn off for you? Are you still really excited to be there like between you and I? Cause I can imagine getting elected for the first time, like you're pumped, but then it's like, wait, there are a lot of responsibilities that come with this. So I will say that uh, being a congressperson is um, not glamorous at all. <laughs> and it's not at all what attracted me to the job. Uh, I think what was terrific is that I was a staffer for a bunch of years uh, after college. I was a scheduler, uh, and then I worked my way up to chief of staff. And so I really did get a full view of what a congressional office does. Um, and that's what attracted me to the office, knowing how impactful an office like this one can be, uh, not just for the communities that you represent, but also on policy issues. And so that requires work. I mean, I, I have to tell you, I... I keep my head down. I try to, you know, build relationships down here so that we can get, you know, meaningful legislation done on the opioid epidemic or on combined sexy issues, Connor, <laughs> in terms of, you know, talking about sewage, talking about pipeline safety, for example, you really do have to get people to understand like what happened in Lawrence Andover and North Andover with the Merrimack Valley gas explosions to understand the importance of putting in better safety measures, right? So that part is not, um, I wouldn't say that that's glamorous, that you have to do a lot of coalition building, you've got to, you know, you've got to get a bill to a place where you know it can pass, which we did. Um, but I would say it's, it's a lot of hard work. And then it's um, super rewarding. I mean, I love traveling all over the district. It's the thing I miss most about this past year, um, because the communities are so different. Uh, I always learn something new when I'm talking to folks about what their concerns or what their issues are, what small businesses issues are. 
Uh, and then it's my job to kind of come back here and, and make sure that we're, you know, converting that into legislation. Now, you shifted from a corporate setting, correct, initially? Yeah, I, I, well, I worked at a startup, so we tried to be corporate. <laughs> but Unsuccessfully? We were, we were a scrappy startup. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, and so I started there, and then I, I started my own very small boutique uh, consulting company. Um, so, yes, I, but I did sit in a lot of corporate boardrooms with uh, no other women, if that's where you're going. <laughs> Well, no, my question is you're shifting from a corporate setting into politics. Yeah. And I've been having this conversation with a lot of my roommates recently about where can you make a larger impact, being super successful on the business end or a super successful politician? In your opinion, do you think you can get more done being a successful entrepreneur as opposed to working in politics? I mean, obviously, and be totally straightforward, you know? Yeah, no, I think it's narrow, right? I mean, I think it's, um, it's more narrow in terms of what you can impact. Uh, uh, look, I think if you want to have an impact in the world, you know, it's, you know, it's on you to figure out how to do that. And you can do that in a multitude of ways. Uh, you know, for me, it was about getting more women into leadership roles. It was like setting the conditions um, at work so that, you know, businesses didn't antagonize women to leave. <laughs> they were more embracing them. And uh, and, and helping them ascend in the organization, which doesn't happen automatically. That requires, you know, real work and, and real like systemic change in a lot of the ways that these companies operate. Here, I can kind of think beyond the walls of a, of a company or, you know, a, a number of employees. And I could think of, you know, when we pass, you know, paid family and medical leave, that's going to impact everyone in this country. Uh, and it's going to impact, you know, the people in my district, which I really do put it through the lens of how will this, you know, positively impact the people I represent. But like so many of the measures that we're talking about, even right now with the with the American Families Plan is childcare. You know, that has been holding women back from working and not just women. I mean, like working parents in general, men want it as much as women. I mean, we don't have affordable, accessible health care. I mean, childcare in this country. And so if we're going to have an economic recovery, if we're going to make certain that it's inclusive of everyone, high wage workers, low wage workers, women, men, uh, you know, people of color, then we want and we have to pay people uh, to do that work so that they can support their family. And we have to make it so folks can afford and have peace of mind that it's going to be quality childcare. So I think those things are hugely impactful and there's no place I'd rather be than right here working on issues like that. Could you see the benefit to being a super rich elite at the same point? Like, let's say like you're a Jeff Bezos and you have $20 billion to administer to childcare. I mean, that's also an effective way to get a problem done, correct? Yeah, look, one of the things that we are seeing right now, um, and I've even seeing it with companies in the district that I represent, is in the absence of, you know, Washington working, right, there's been gridlock a lot uh, for many years here, which is one of the reasons why I ran, um, they are taking matters into their own hands, and they are putting childcare centers right on site, you know, or they're raising their wages uh, to lure people you know, back to work um, because we don't have a, a family sustaining minimum wage in this country. And so I do think like there is a there is a obligation and there is a responsibility for those business leaders 
to, you know, help lead uh, that transition and help put pressure on everyone else to make it so we don't have this wage gap in our country, to make it so, you know, we are, um, uh, we don't have this income inequality problem. And we do have the conditions where people can, they can work, um, but not two and three jobs, so they can enjoy their lives and enjoy their families. And so I think wherever you sit, whether it's in business, in government, in the nonprofit world, you know, if we hopefully we'll all be rowing in the same direction, but you know, we all have an obligation to make sure that the people that we're privileged uh, to either have work for us or to serve have dignity and a, and a quality of life that you know we can all be proud of. So I um and you know what I I do think that um, we have seen companies do that, and I think that they're we hold them up as models. Listen, I would love to talk to you all day, but I know you're limited on time. So I want to make sure Lexi has a chance to get her question off. Lexi is newly graduated from Boston University. Oh, get out. My, our, our youngest, Christian, uh, just graduated from Boston University. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Le Lexi, not to, not to cut you off, I believe Lexi had a couple drinks last night. So she might be feeling a little loopy. Lexi, give him a rip. I thought senior week was over. <laughs> <laughs> you calling her an alcoholic? No, but I just, it's the end of the whole graduation festivities. I'm just kidding. Lindsay, we don't have to talk about that. Please ask me your question. Lori, my question for you is, over 44 million Americans struggle with student loan debt, myself included. And it's an issue that's been exacerbated by the pandemic. What is your plan to alleviate the suffering for your constituents? Uh. It's a great question. And when we talk about all the time, you know, I was the first person in my family to graduate from college and I, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to go um, to, uh, to college if, you know, I hadn't gotten that scholarship that, you know, Connor mentioned uh, to play volleyball there. Um, and so it's, look, the, the crushing uh, student loan debt, it impacts our entire economy. Uh, and you have the number, the, the number is right. I think it's, you know, 44, 45 million borrowers owe more than $1.7 trillion in student loans. Uh, so that's, those are extreme levels of debt um, that can prohibit talented young people uh, like yourself from taking entrepreneurial risks. Uh, it could uh, prevent them from buying homes and cars, and it has far reaching effects on our economy. So I do think Congress can do uh, much more to alleviate the immediate impact of the student debt crisis, um, but then also address its root causes. I mean, I, there are still too many students who face barriers to continuing their education. And so we're having the conversation about student debt. We also have to work harder to reform the system uh, so that more people can afford to go. And I think better transparency, accessibility, that, you know, it, it, it comes to colleges and universities, um, you know, and we, we have to make sure that they're making financial aid offers to students, that financial aid is there. So I do think it's crucial that we work to lower the overall cost of, of education. Um, you know, I, I support loan forgiveness, uh, especially for students who can't pay back their loans as, as well. Look, last year I sat on the Education Labor Committee and there were there were too many students who were defrauded by predatory for-profit colleges, our veterans um, who were targeted because of their GI benefits. So we have to make sure that, um, that uh, 
um, we deal with this debt crisis. And frankly, it's going to be uh, an economic boon uh, when we do, because people will be able to use their disposable income to reinvest in our economy. So student loans can't leave. Um, uh, they, they, it, it can leave too many people right now stuck in a cycle of poverty um, after finishing their education. And there's no excuse for us um, to, to let that persist in the, in the wealthiest country in the, in the world. So um, I agree. I, that, I, go ahead. Sorry to cut you off. I could not agree more. I didn't understand student debt was such a big deal until I personally left school. Yeah. And I realized, oh shit, I can actually start up my own brand in the city. I can start producing in the city. I can start making my own show because my parents busted their ass and they were able to pay for my education. But Lexi now is like, oh shit, I have this big wave hanging over my head. I got to take care of this. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, um, it is, it's a huge issue. And look, it's, I, one of the things I worked on with my colleagues, um, is the college affordability, uh, college affordability act, um, which it does include key provisions that's going to make higher education more accessible and more equitable. Um, you know, it tackles the rising cost of tuition. It makes, you know, college more affordable for low and middle income students by increasing Pell Grants, uh, eases the burden of student loans so that um, the existing loans are cheaper, easier to pay off. It, uh, you know, cracks down on these for-profit uh, colleges which are, which are predatory. Uh, and it also holds, you know, schools accountable um, for providing students like a quality education that leads to a rewarding career. So there's no question. And look, right now we've got an administration that's talking about not just, um, you know, free community college, right? Those two extra years after high school, um, but also that will be certificate bearing and will lead to a good paying job when done right. Um, but also universal pre-K for three and four year olds. And that is going to do so much to um, to close the achievement gap in our country and also to make the necessary investment in our future. I mean, we, we talk about winning the 21st century. We can't do that if we've got, you know, 44 million people saddled with uh, student loan debt uh, and, and some of them not able, you know, to work in good paying jobs with no promise of getting underneath it. So I think debt cancellation is a, is a, is a big piece of that. And I think targeting that to um, those in the most need first uh, to make sure our, our education is serving them is, is where we need to go. Okay. Again, normally our episodes are a little more in depth, but I know you're very busy. I thought this was in depth. I, thought, I think we can go deeper, man. That's next, right. next time. I mean, if you're running for something, you guys are on some sort of press run, we'll do like a good sit down or something like that. And I just wanted to say your office is like perfectly symmetrical. Oh, well, thank you for that. You know, we just moved. Do you have I was, the OCD bug a little bit? A little bit. <laughs> a little bit. You know, I have uh, a lot bit. Um, <laughs> we were in a closet uh, beforehand. You know, I, I picked a bad number. They give the offices out on a lottery. And yeah, I never really relied on luck uh, in my lifetime. Uh, I picked a really uh, bad number. And so the last two years, so now we picked a better number. We're in a much nicer office. The, the team is so thrilled because they're looking forward to coming back. Many of them haven't even been here yet. And it's, uh, they're going to have the space that they, they deserve. So yeah, it, but it is, it's a perfect square. <laughs> I, I can tell it was meticulously put that way. I, I, because since I just directed a movie, we aim for symmetry in a lot of our frames. I'm like, this is like perfect what we got going on here. Now, we have two ending bits for the show. Yeah. 
listen real close. I'm only gonna say them once. Okay, you ready? Um, yep. Okay, the first one is, hey, I made a movie in Boston like we talked about. <laughs> when That's it's incredible. ready, when yep. it's ready, which I'm hoping this fall, I'd like to put it in some theaters in Lowell, Lawrence area. Yeah. Your family, show up with the hubby and the kids and just watch it and enjoy it. Can you do so that? So it's family friendly. I could probably get a seven-year-old. Can she watch it? Uh, I don't know about the seven-year-old. <laughs> the BU graduate, definitely, but not the seven-year-old. Good, good to know. Good to, that's why they have ratings. <laughs> exactly. So that's number one. Number two, this is how we start and end the show. You say, hi, your name. And this is my golden hour. Directly after, no break, hi, your name, and that was my golden hour. Okay. Whenever okay. you're ready. Don't mess it up. Hi, I'm Lori Trahan, and this is my golden hour. Hi, I'm Lori Trahan, and that was my golden hour. <laughs>